0: 22-3355 Western Missouri, Ronald Reagan Jr. versus Berkshire Hathaway Automotive. When you're prepared, please proceed.
1: Good morning, and may it please the court, Gregory Keenan, appearing on behalf of appellant Ronald Reagan and I'd like to reserve four minutes, if I may. The order below committed three fundamental errors in holding Mr. Reagan's guest sheet uncopyrightable. First, the district court conflated copyright law's originality standard with patent law's more demanding novelty standard. The district court went hunting for uniqueness, but binding case law makes clear that neither uniqueness or novelty is required for copyrightability, Rather, all that's required is originality, which credits even creative choices that are crude, obvious, or quite humble. Second, the District Court <coughs> applied a Copyright Office internal regulation to set the standard for Mr. Reagan's copyright, copyrighted guest sheet. And it did so in a way that contradicted the Constitution, the statute, and the Supreme Court's demand that originality sets the standard for copyright. Finally, the order misinterpreted Baker v. Selden, a Supreme Court case from 1879, and misread that case in a way that neither the Supreme Court nor this Court has ever construed Baker v. Selden as standing for, and did so in a way that contradicts both the statute's originality requirement in Section 102A, and the Supreme Court's subsequent clarification that originality, meaning that a work is not copied and that a modicum of creativity um, is exerted, sets the standard for copyrightability. For those reasons <clears throat> and those grounds alone, this court could reverse and remend with clarification about the proper legal standard um, and allow the district court to apply the correct legal standard of copyrightability to the registered guest sheet.
0: Counsel, in what way does the guest sheet convey information?
1: Uh, Yes, Your Honor. Uh, So, um, just as a threshold matter, I'd just like to stress that neither FICE nor 103A requires the conveyance of information, but the Utopia Court from the 11th Circuit has required the blank form rule to be satisfied if there is a conveyance of information. Here, even that standard would be met. Utopia would be met because it conveys to a salesperson what questions to ask of a customer. It conveys what phrases to use, for example, referring to a customer as a guest, as opposed to a customer. Uh, it would instruct the salesperson to ask specific questions in specific orders. And I'd just like to stress that- well, Would bre- any,
0: any blank do that? I mean, if, if you just label blanks on the, on the page, you could construe that as instruction?
1: Uh, so that concern was raised by Bibero in the Ninth Circuit that that's an overly broad standard. I think the Krigos Court in the Second Circuit addresses that, and then there's also some distinguishing features. So, um, first of all, in cases like Biber where that concern was articulated, it's interesting to note that there were um, depositions done with the creator of the sheet, and the record there revealed that certain questions were required by government regulations um, set by the American Medical Association. So, for example... Um, that would be precluded because that's not a creative choice. Uh, The limiting principles are twofold, as imposed by Feist. One, are the choices being made, um, are they being copied, or are they being originally and independently created? But the limiting principle of Feist, and it's not a particularly stringent one, uh, is the modicum of creativity. So uh, here, it's that Mr. Reagan is deciding which questions to ask, which questions not to ask, in the same way that the Kriegos court said readily satisfies Feist. Because in Kriegos there was a selection of nine fairly obvious baseball statistic categories, and the court did some mathematics and realized choosing even nine of those categories about which ones to include and not to include um, is choosing from thousands of possible permutations. So here, uh, the, the creative choices about brevity in particular are important because if someone's trying to sell a car, on a car lot, you can only ask a customer, or in this case guest, so many questions before they get bored. It's readily distinguishable from other cases like medical forms where if someone's asking a patient how tall they are, how they're asking that question isn't going to change a patient's height. By contrast, a salesperson who's trying to engage in the art of the sale and try and seal the deal, trying to get a potential customer or client to pay as much money as possible, has to ask certain questions in certain ways, and that will actually change um, the nature of the response, which, Your Honor, goes to the question of what is this conveying? It's conveying decisions about how to try and sell a car to a person so that you're getting the optimal, um, or in this case the phrase used is up to, you know, uh, drive home today budget. So there's all sorts of creative choices here um, that satisfy Feist's not particularly demanding standard of copyrightability. I'd also like to stress, um, the Copyright Office looked at this and applied its own CFRs and essentially didn't really bat an eye at it because anyone familiar with copyright law would know this readily satisfies device. All that's required is a very minimal degree of creativity and that it's not copied. So we would argue that this is much akin to the Kriegos case, which really reconciled this blank form rule, which has somewhat dubious foundations. It
2: looked at the Supreme Court's VICE
1: decision, reconciled the VICE decision with the blank form rule, and didn't struggle to find a baseball form that asked about, you know, win-loss record and ERA and really straightforward, obvious stuff, didn't struggle to say that's copyrightable. It may not be particularly impressive. It expressed some skepticism about what the damages might be, but it concluded that we cannot say as a matter of law, that this, you know, form didn't satisfy Um, the FICE standard and the 102A originality standard imposed by the statute. Um, So, too, here. So, we do have a problem with the application of some um, categorical blank form rule. It's, frankly, not the law of this circuit. The Supreme Court has never adopted it. A handful of circuits have read Baker v. Selden and uh, internal operating procedure um, as a way to construct this additional demand. We don't think that's legitimate, but we also think that even looking at utopia and Kriegos interpretation of it, uh, it readily satisfies those two tests. In the case of the Kriegos test, it satisfies it because it meets Feist and the 102A originality requirement. In the case of Utopia, it satisfies the blank form rule because it's conveying to a salesperson um, what questions to ask, what order to ask them, and what questions not to ask, what phrases to use. <clears throat> um, I'd also just like to point out that the Copyright Office uh, registered the work, and per the statute in Section 410c, that creates a rebuttable presumption of copyright validity. Um, We'd stress that our opponent didn't introduce any evidence to the contrary uh, to overcome that presumption, and that all the cases that our defendant, defendant relies upon, they were at a summary judgment posture, and the records in those cases were either undisputed facts that indicated that the work had been copied from some other source, or indicated that the creative decisions weren't actually creative because they were required by um, they're required either by a statute or some sort of pre-existing medical code. Um, and finally, on the bigger one, it's particularly so what, what, interesting what because what case says you can't use a legal argument to rebut that presumption. Uh, I think you could use a legal argument, but it would have to be applied to the facts. So, Feist um, in this court's jurisprudence on originality says there are two components. Um, that it's creative and it can be very obvious and crude and humble as the language, Um, and two, that it's not copied. So whether or not someone copied something from another person, we probably wouldn't be able to determine that um, purely as a legal matter without some sort of deposition about the creative process that they underwent. Um, As to creativity and other considerations, that's going to depend um, a little bit on the precise question we're asking. So sometimes a defendant will come in and argue, There's so much prior art that looks so similar to that. But they show up and actually produce examples of that. They don't just look at the sheet in isolation. Um, So, for example, our opponent tries to make the argument that, um, you know, this is a run-of-a-mill or industry standard, and yet they never introduce any sort of industry standard or example to kind of back that up. And more importantly, uh, that would be a question that we'd have to look at at the time of creation, which per their certificate is in 1988. So even if it were commonplace today... um, We would have to know if it was commonplace at the time. We would have to know if Mr. Reagan copied it. We would have to know if it was so ubiquitous that, uh, in the case of Feist, for example, the Supreme Court said, well, we're not going to credit the choice to put a phone book in alphabetical order because that's the only way people put phone books, you know. um, It wasn't just that alphabetical order wasn't creative enough in the abstract. It was they were looking at particular industry standards with examples of decades of consistent use. So one of the difficulties here is we just think the district court, one, misapplied the standard, two, repeatedly said he wasn't going to credit the selection of questions because they weren't unique or they were too similar to other cases, where this case in Applied Innovations and the Supreme Court advice has made clear uniqueness is not a requirement. Um, So that was improperly, as a matter of law, making legal error and discrediting that selection as a creative process. And then on top of it, it didn't engage in the type of analysis where you're looking at some sort of proof of industry standard. Or in the case of Bibaro, the creator, the doctor testified that he wasn't trying to convey information, that he was purely trying to record information. So we would submit that the district court and our opponent improperly discount the 410C registration, but also make a host of legal errors about the standard when they demand uniqueness for novelty, or when they tell us that it's too similar without ever proving it or showing it to other things out there to quote unquote industry standard. the Supreme Court and this Court have made clear that just independent creation and a modicum of creativity in the selections, akin to Kriegos, um, and so even being similar to prior art, that's a patent consideration. It's an error of law to discount those similarities just because another, um, just because another work might be similar out there. And the Supreme Court and Feist and this Court and in applied innovation, I think, has been clear on that matter. Unless the Court has more questions, I'll rest. Thank you, Council. Thank you very much.
0: <coughs> Mr. Schlesbaum.
2: May it please the court. My name is Ryan Schlesbaum. I'm a law firm, Shook, Hardy, and Bacon on behalf of the appellee Berkshire Hathaway Automotive, Inc., and with me today is Michael Hayes. The Western District of Missouri correctly found that Mr. Reagan's single-page customer intake form, consisting of less than 100 words, was not copyrightable because it is a blank form that does not convey any information. The court applied the Supreme Court's precedent from Feist to determine that the headings and prompts lacked originality and creativity. Just like the telephone book in Feist, the form here has headings and categories that are obvious, garden-variety questions that would be asked by any car salesperson, including name and address, telephone number of a prospective buyer, as well as the make, model, and trade-in value of their trade-in car. All of these, t- these, ter- these questions or prompts are routine, and all is evident from the examination of the form. Importantly, council argues that the form instructs the sale of a car on how a, a car salesman would go about um, – profiting from a sale. If you look at the four corners of the document, which is what we argue here is relevant, it's in Appendix 38, there are no instructions. There are no indications that that a a sales representative should refer to the customer as a guest or should actually use the language in the form itself. Rather, it just provides blank space for um, recording factual information that's recorded during the sale. This is the same as the Feist case. There are those instructions. Was, this
0: case was decided on the on the pleadings and at the pleading stage. Was,
2: That's was, correct, Your Honor. Was it was no, decided as a Rule 12c motion.
0: There was no discovery or any further proceeding beyond
2: the pleadings. That's correct, Your Honor. We actually filed the motion for um, determination of invalidity on the blank form doctrine as a Rule 12b six motion out of the very uh, early stages of the case. The court denied that without um, prejudice and invited us to refile the, the motion as a Rule 12c motion. Um, the case put, pended during the pandemic, so discovery did not proceed, and uh, the parties amic- amicably agreed to extend the discovery deadline. But neither side presented any evidence to the contrary.
0: So w- what's your view of the, the effect of the uh, Copyright Office's grant of a certificate for this document? What does that do to um, this case? That that's, that's in the record. That's before the judge. That there's a, a, a presumption that there's a valid copyright.
2: Correct, Your Honor. So, so the um, and, and we acknowledge this. The district court acknowledges this in his order as well. That under 17 U.S.C. 410c, the the registration of the copyright is a prima facie um, um, evidence of validity. But that same paragraph goes on to say that the district court is afforded discretion in how much evidentiary weight to afford that prima facie finding here. And it's our view that because we're not challenging whether Mr. Reagan copied this form, at least at this stage of the case, we're challenging whether as a matter of law this is subject matter copyrightability. That prima facie burden doesn't give deference. Instead, it's the the reliance upon uh, the law applied to the form at issue here. And if you apply the law, just like the 11th Circuit did in the Utopian case, it's very clear that the information, in order to show some modicum of creativity under Feist, it must convey some information. It must be more than just a place to record data. And that's exactly what this form does, just like the the medical history form and Utopia did. Isn't
0: there some utility to describing the customer as a guest as opposed to uh, uh, a customer?
2: Well, respectfully, Your Honor, we don't know. Um, frankly, I don't know if that has value or not.
0: Well, wouldn't that be something that would need to be litigated that go past the pleadings to where there's discovery to indicate that there's a basis for having choices in the in the terms that were actually uh, placed on the
2: form yeah I, I don't believe so your honor and first of all i don't believe utility is the test, and so whether or not calling somebody a guest results in a higher sales value of the car isn't the test for copyright protection as, as counsel points out it's the test as originality and creativity under feist, so the issue of whether or not guest is actually a creative expression um, isn't, isn't really necessary to determine utility. But moreover, simple words and phrases like guest and uh, comprising and, and these simple phrases aren't subject to uh, written expression under 1 or 2A anyway. And so determining whether or not Mr. Reagan, in fact, came up with the idea of using guest and instructed salespeople to use that word is not the issue of copyrightability here today. It's whether the, the document that we have before us is sufficiently creative such that it could be found to be original and warrant copyright protection. We deposit it 's not um, the other reason is that you know a council says that that we should um, look look to Feist and the choices that were made and and see the modicum of creativity and somehow the district court erred by not applying Feist. I would disagree if you look at Feist, the standard articulated there is that it simply has to be an original work of authorship with some modicum of creativity. If you look at the, what the district court said in its decision at appendix three o six and I quote. The standard applied here is a work must be original to the author, and it must possess some minimal level of creativity. That is the Feist standard. The district court did apply that standard, and later at at Appendix 309, um, the court actually cites to Feist in its decision. So the the notion that that we're creating some multi-factor test that's different from what the Supreme Court articulated is simply not true. He applied Feist and went through the factors to determine whether or not the content, the selection, and the arrangement of information on the guest sheet was in fact um, original or creative to warrant um, copyright protection. And he analogized it to the actual form in the Utopia case, and finding it did not warrant protection. Now, counsel says that, well, maybe the selection of questions conveys information, because if we put certain information on a form, that should necessarily prompt a salesman, in this case, to ask those questions. This is the exact uh, issue that Bibaro decided against. Bibaro recognized that a form by its nature, is going to include certain requests It omit certain, certain requests. In doing so, it picks what it believes to be informative or instructive. That doesn't that meet the standard of whether or not it conveys information. Otherwise, it would simply swallow the rule. Every form, by its nature, has some information included and some excluded. We can't simply say it's creative because it excluded certain information at the uh, expense of others.
0: Well, Counsel, I think you've partly answered this question already, but... Is there guidance that you can give to this court as to where the line is between a form that conveys information and one that's merely reactive?
2: That's a great question. And, and in fact, I think the the answer to that is actually found in uh, Appellant's case in Kragos. Kragos grappled with this decision as well. Is how do we know whether something conveys information? And the answer is whether or not the information or the, the expression that's in the document is so obvious that the headers could not be considered creative. So we look at the the language that's used and the um, information that's requested and determine whether or not it actually um, is obvious to one uh, of looking at the form. Here, that's simply self-evident. We don't need to have evidence of somebody asking for what is the trade-in value of a car, what is your budget
1: when you go into it buy a car. I I I was wrestling with that a little bit, because on one hand, it does seem like obvious questions, and I know it's always risky to use your own personal experiences, but... I've bought a handful of cars, and I haven't had half of these questions asked of me. So I wonder if if it's
0: really that obvious or not.
2: Yeah, but I think that's fair. I mean, maybe it's not obvious to you, or, or maybe obvious, but it certainly was obvious to Judge Sachs. And I don't know that we need to disturb that that decision. Um, you know, and if, at the end of the day, if the issue is we need to take a factual finding to show that that the questions here are asked, I think that we certainly would. I think that'd be a waste of the party's time because. Essentially, what would ask for us is to put into the record evidence of what uh, every salesman typically does, is to ask what is your name and address and phone number, and how much are you willing to spend on a car. You, you know, that, I mean, you say
1: that, and it does seem obvious, but I don't think I've ever been asked what my address was until mm-hmm. maybe I was sitting down to actually buy the car. Yeah. And
2: you know, the other point is the same, same debate happened in Utopia, right? In that case, the question is, well, we have a medical examination form that has all of these boxes and information about potential symptoms, and, and and maybe the doctor asks all those all the time, and maybe they don't. But yet the court says, it seems obvious that if you're going to take a medical examination, at least these are the types of questions you would ask. It's not it's not inherently creative to put that on a form and say this is something that um, has the spark of modicum of creativity that warrants the exclusive right to ask those questions on this form, which is what they're asking for here. Um, there are other cases beyond utopia that, that we've pointed to that I think are instructive to the court. Um, but I think I, I want to I point out to the, um, to, the, to the blank form doctrine. You know, counsel argues that, that Baker v. Seldon is, is not good law or that no courts have ever adopted this notion that blank forms are uncopyrightable. I, I think that's not quite correct. Certainly there's been criticism, maybe fair criticism, of Baker v. Seldon. But if you look at the, the decision from the Supreme Court in 1879, it says, and I quote, blank account books are not subject to copyrights. That's the direct language and quote from Baker v. Sullivan. Now, there's further language in Baker v. Sullivan that talks about the idea versus expression dichotomy. So does it matter that that
0: was uh, quite a few decades prior to the Copyright Act being... uh,
2: Sure. So the Copyright uh, Act, Act. and uh, I'm not going to go through the history of the Act here with you all today, it has changed. There have been amendments and and changes made to the Act. But I don't think it matters in the sense that the, the underlying idea of originality has always been the same. And so the... The fact that they, the, the Congress has never um, enacted language to the effect to support Baker v. Seldon, at least not in 102A, doesn't mean it's it's not good law. And in fact, the, you know, the, the issue that the Copyright Office now includes this in their own regulations suggests that it is, in fact, the standard for copyright as it applies to blank forms. You know, the, the counsel pointed out that the regulation in 202 c says that blank forms, and then it lists certain examples such as account books and, and checkbooks are not copyrightable if, so long as they do not convey information. And that's the standard we're asking to be applied here. And I think it's the standard that our sister circuits have applied in, in the 11th Circuit, the 6th Circuit, and the 9th Circuit. Um, all of those cases are cited in the, in the briefing, but Bibaro is in the 9th Circuit, and then um, we have Utopia in the, in the 11th Circuit. Um, and then um, the other cases, the Taylor uh, case in the 6th Circuit, as well as John, um, the, the checkbook case of uh, John Harlan. So... Um, you know the issue then is, is how do we get reconcile the, the decision in Feist on originality with the um, blank form doctrine that 's been adopted by these circuits and I think the answer is simple it 's the originality issue is still the threshold question. Feist never addressed how do we apply that to a blank form. It applied it in the context of a phone book where facts were not copyrightable, potentially compilations of facts are not are copyrightable, but in that instance it said that the selection. Of, of the information for the, the headings and, and what to include in the phone book was almost, it was so obvious that it was almost, um, let me make sure I get the language correct here, expected as a matter of course and almost practically inevitable. I think the same true, truth from FIIS could be applied to the, the language that's in the, the guest sheet that we're talking about today. Practically inevitable and as, uh, expected as a matter of course that one would ask for a name of a buyer and what they're willing to spend on a car. So, um, in in conclusion, I think the court can affirm the the, the district court's decision below um, for several reasons. The the district court did not err in applying the the correct standard of, of copyrightability. It cites to and applies the standard of feist. And it correctly found that Mr. Reagan's form was a blank form because it lacked originality and creativity. It simply asked routine questions that may have been um, any salesman would ask. And as such, um, the form did not convey information and therefore is not copyrightable. This is supported by decisions um, outside of this circuit in the 11th Circuit, 9th Circuit, and 6th Circuit. And to the extent that the court is concerned about resolving this issue on a, on a Rule 12C motion, in our briefing, we provide to the court at least five examples where courts have, a, have ruled on the subject matter of copyrightability at the Rule 12 stage, whether it be a Rule 12C motion or a Rule 12B6 motion. Those are in the briefing, and, and I can highlight those to you all now. Uh, but there are certainly great examples of courts doing, uh, making that decision at this stage. In the, and we have two decisions from the, the Ninth Circuit in Morby-Kroger and, and palomar Martial Arts, and then one decision from the Tenth Circuit in the District of Kansas, which is the Shepler's Kellogg case, and then the final one is from the Southern District of New York in June's Marketing. In all of those cases, the decision was made on the Rule 12 fa- phase of the case, whether or not something was eligible for copyright protection under the plain form rule. And in all those cases, it was you know, decided in, in favor of the defendant. But moreover, even if we had to get to the summary judgment stage, if you look at the, the, the authority we've cited, by and large, those decisions are made applying the law to the facts that are undisputed as you must under Rule 56. And so even if you look at, at you, you know, the Bibero decision or um, Tastefully Simple in the Sixth Circuit, it may have been decided on some factual basis, but those facts were uncontested such that a decision could be made as a matter of law. Here, there's no contest as to what the form says. We're not challenging the language on the document. And largely, there's no um, issue with what, um, at least at this stage, who was the original author. So you
0: don't challenge that the, the form has been copied?
2: Not at this point, Your Honor. Certainly, we, we reserved those defenses to the, to the extent that was necessary, but we believe that the issue of copyrightability was fundamental such that it should be resolved at the first level of review. Um, and finally, I think there was some um, indication, I apologize, I just had a, a fleeting thought. Um, yeah, unless the, the, the court has any further questions. I think we can affirm this decision and respectfully request that this court affirm the Western District of Missouri. I see
0: none. Thank Thank you, Mr. Schletzbaum. Mr. Kahn, your rebuttal.
1: Um, I'd like to begin just quickly with that question about um, whether this is obvious. So there's a lot of speculation about what might be obvious or not be obvious. The problem is this highlights a central flaw. This is an order replete with legal errors. This court has made clear that ingenuity in the selection or expression, no matter how crude, humble, or obvious, will be sufficient to make the work copyrightable. We shouldn't be asking questions about whether something is novel or unique or obvious because this court and the Supreme Court have made clear those are irrelevant considerations to a proper application of the copyright standard. That's in this court's applied innovations decision. It's at 876 F.2D 626, page 635 from this court in 1989. And that's not a one-off. This court is consistently held, in accordance with other courts, that, quote, originality does not constitute novelty or uniqueness. So we, but simply that the work be independently created. I'm fairly certain I just heard that they're not challenging that this was independently created at this stage. So the problem is, we just have a court that applied a whole bunch of improper considerations about uniqueness and novelty, and now we're here today arguing about whether or not something is obvious when binding law from this court tells us that it doesn't matter if the selection is obvious, it matters if it's independently made. Um, just as one uh,
0: so you would agree that something could be independently made and still not be original. not meet the originality requirement the copyright act
1: that's correct, your Honor. Feist has clarified that there's two requirements. one is that it's independently created, the other is that there is a iota of creative decision. But I think if we look to the Krigos case, even when courts are applying the blank form rule, no one's struggling to recognize that a selection of somewhere, you know, even as small as nine categories passes what's notoriously labeled a famously low standard. Um, and I'd just like to stress that this court has said that selection and combination of expressions, no matter how crude, humble, or obvious, you know, meet that bar. Um, I'd also like to quickly touch on Baker v. Selden. We're not saying Baker v. Selden is not good law. It's that courts, including this court, have interpreted Baker v. Selden for standing for the unremarkable proposition that Section 102b has codified what is called the idea-expression distinction. The problem is, Vice has clarified that it's 102a, not 102b of the statute, that sets forward originality. And this court has not minced words. In Toro, it said, "Quote: Section 102b does not answer the question of whether appellant's particular expression of an idea is copyrightable." That's a Toro v. R and R Products, seven eight seven F. Two D. Twelve zero eight page. 1212, 8th Circuit, 1986. The problem isn't that they applied Baker v. Selden, it's that Baker v. Selden, as this court and the Supreme Court in FiCE, recognize that all Baker v. Selden is doing is in 102B uh, enshrining the idea expression dichotomy, which means Mr. Reagan can't come in and tell you he owns a patent-like monopoly in the idea of using a guest sheet at all. It's just he's saying this defendant can't copy my particular guest sheet and use my particular questions and my particular expression. they got to go make their own, or they can license it. Um, that's pretty table stakes. So we We're not saying Baker v. Selvin is bad law. We're just saying this court and the Supreme Court have never identified or interpreted Baker to stand for some sweeping categorical proposition that a whole class of works is not copyrightable. Um, I'd finally like to just touch on the policy considerations. The Supreme Court's been clear, uh, as recently as the Warhol decision from this year, that a court should not attempt to evaluate the artistic significance of a particular work, and elsewhere, that it is not the job of a court interpreting the act to, quote, engage in a free-ranging search for the best copyright policy. Um, Courts are not at liberty to second-guess the Congress's determination of policy um, decisions. Here, Congress made a decision to give an incredibly broad and, uh, do you mind if I just finish the sentence? complete this law. Thank you very much. Um, an incredibly broad and permissive property right, and then make a whole bunch of carve-outs to concerns about over but it is the congressional decision to create broad and permissive property rights under Feist and 102A's originality requirement, and leave it to the free market and the public to determine the worth of a work. We shouldn't be sitting around judging whether or not, I mean, this is something that a car salesman would obviously ask someone. So respectfully, we would ask for this Court to reverse for application of the wrong legal standard in contradiction of binding case law from this Court.
0: Thank you, Mr. Keenan.
1: Thank you very much, Your Honor. Well,
0: thanks both, Counsel, for participation in argument before the Court this morning. We'll continue to wrestle with the record and uh, do the best we can with the decision in due course. Thank you.